morning. We're going to be in Mark chapter number 12, and we are going to be in verses uh, 13 to 17. While you're turning there, I'm going to go get a tissue. We're live here, people. I'm going to go get a tissue real quick. All right, I'm back. I promised I would be. All right, so normally we'd have you stand, but just be upright and hard. If you want to stand where you are, that's great, but normally um, we have you do that. But at this point, we're just going to read uh, Mark 12, verses 13 to 17, and see what God has for us this morning. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. And they marveled at him. This is God's word. So when we looked at things last time, we saw that Jesus was being approached by the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And one of the things that they were wanting to look at was what made What gave you the authority to be able to do this? Because the chief priests and the elders, they were the ones that were in charge. And so when Jesus began to do this outside of their authority, they began to really get a bit upset at that. So Jesus asked them a question, and one of the questions that he asked them was, um, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And so when... When they asked that, that was one of the ways that Jesus ended up just really drilling down, letting them just really expose themselves as far as what they believed and and as far as um, what they were willing or not willing to do. They were afraid of the people. And so they ended up saying, we don't know. And so Jesus didn't answer them. And he gives a devastating parable, the parable of the tenants, that showed them that they really didn't care about the things of God. They were just leveraging the things of God to do what they want to do, and that's something that happens with us all the time. I say us as an American church, as, as churches that, that tend to want to have a seat at the table, tend to want to have a seat at the societal table. We want to make sure that we're thought of really well by, by the culture, when in reality, when Jesus comes, there's a countercultural piece to this. And we're not always going to be thought well by the culture, because what we're holding to is something that the culture is trying to drive completely away from. They think that this is restricting. And what we're saying is, no, this, these boundaries that are found in Scripture is actually where we find our freedom. And over and over, we see that Jesus is being approached over and over. He's constantly showing them some Scripture. But now here Jesus is maybe not showing them Scripture, but he's showing them some things that they should know from Scripture. And so when we look at this, we see two groups that are coming and looking to try to trap Jesus. The Pharisees and some of the Herodians. And it says there, and really, when it says in verse 13, and they sent to him. Well, there's two words I want to look at here. One is, who are they? And 
what does it mean that they sent? What's, what's that talking about? So the they, so we have a Supreme Court and we have a Congress and they're the ones and, you know, with different parties that are there, you know, Republicans, Democrats, independents and such. And we have a Supreme Court. And so those are the groups that make the laws and judge the laws. And, and so they're the ones that are making sure that we're trying to stay on track as a country, or at least that's, that's supposed to be the idea. For the Jews, it was the Sanhedrin. And so there's about 70 to 72 of them. And the Sanhedrin had a lot of different parties. They had the Pharisees, who were the conservatives. They had the Sadducees, which we're going to look at next week. The Sadducees were ones who didn't believe in the resurrection or anything supernatural. And so that's why some preachers have said that's why they were sad, you see. Moving on. And then there was also the Herodians. So the Pharisees, the conservatives, they were the ones that were wanting to keep everything according to Scripture. They were wanting to keep everything according to their traditions. And they wanted to keep everything. They wanted to keep the Jewishness, the Old Testamentness of everything in place. The Herodians were Jews that believed in the Herodian dynasty. They were pro-Herod. And if you know anything about Herod, Herod was not a good guy. And Herod was not really pro what the Pharisees were wanting to do. It was an odd thing to see them both on the same team. The closest thing that I can think of is many of you may remember what happened on September 11, 2001, when the planes crashed into those, um, into the, into the towers. You may remember that. And what you may remember is that was one of the few times in our lives that we saw the Republicans and the Democrats and everybody that's in Congress. That was one of the few times that we saw them united. And it brought back the old axiom that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So this is what was going on. When they would be in, in the chambers in the, of the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Herodians were going after each other. They were wanting to just get rid of each other because they were so opposed to where they were uh, as far as their worldviews were concerned. But now they had one thing in common. They hated Jesus and they wanted him gone. And so they were sent. And that word sent is the same word where we get the word apostle. The ones who were sent. And so an apostle is one who is sent by the authority of Christ. These folks are sent by the authority of the Sanhedrin. So this is a significant thing. And they were trying to trap him. Boy, all these words. We want to make sure that we're defining our terms here. It's really important. They wanted to trap him. And that word trap, this is the only time in the Greek that this word is used. And that word trap, it doesn't mean like in a gotcha moment. Sometimes when you see people that are being interviewed and uh, some ha some has somebody has some piece of little information that the other person doesn't know they have and then they pull it out and it's basically they gotcha. It's a gotcha moment. But this was more than that. They were actually wanting to hunt him down and destroy him. They wanted to get him away. But rather than being aggressive about it, they used another strategy. And it's a strategy that sadly works all too often on us, and that's flattery. And when you look at the flattery, look at the four things that they say to Jesus that are trying to flatter him in order to get those boundaries down to trap him. Teacher, this is verse 14, by the way. Teacher, we know that you are true. So that's one. We know that you're true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. So they mentioned four different things 
Are any of those false? Well, no, none of them are false. They're, they're actually right on it. But it's always a shame when people can't trust what other people are saying when they're complimenting you or, or saying that you, because especially if you don't know them, there may be that, that idea that they're just trying to flatter you in order to be able to prop themselves up. But Jesus is true. He did not care about anybody else's opinion. He was not swayed by appearances. And he did truly teach the way of God. They had it all right, but their motives were all wrong. Flattery is a dangerous weapon, and it's tempting. One person said that flattery is counterfeit money, which, but for vanity, would have no circulation. So given that Jesus was all about glorifying his father, their flattery had no currency with him. Another person said that flattery is the act of telling another person exactly what he thinks of himself. That's why the Pharisees and the Herodians tried this on Jesus, because it works so well on them. It works so well on them, and they couldn't imagine that it wouldn't work on them. It reminds me, our family loves watching Columbo. That is one of our very, very favorite shows. I know it was on in the 70s, but good is good no matter when it comes out. And so our family enjoys watching Columbo. And recently we watched, Columbo had two pilots. You're going to get a little Columbo history. So Columbo had two pilots. And so recently we watched the second pilot. It's called Ransom for a Dead Man. And this woman had killed her husband, faked his kidnapping, and kept the ransom money. Her stepdaughter believed that, that, her, that she, as the stepmother, was indeed the murderer. And so she used the ransom money obtained for the fake kidnapping to try to pay her off to keep quiet as she shipped her off back to school and back to Europe. But then she runs in toward the end. She runs into Colombo at the airport, thinking she had gotten away, and she was very, very smug. But then Colombo systematically tells her how he knows it's her. The police officer actually was the one that brought the briefcase back with the ransom money. He tells her that he knows that it's her. And this is what he said to her. And I thought this was very, very uh, telling. He said this, Mrs. Williams, Mrs. Williams, I can't do it. Mrs. Williams, you have no conscience. And what is worse, you can't conceive of anybody else being any different than you are. And that's what happened with the Pharisees and the Herodians. They loved to be flattered. They loved to be propped up by words. They loved to have that, that slap on the back and you're a great guy. Wow, we're so glad that you're in church. They love that. Do we? Well, sometimes we love it as well. Sometimes even when we're doing work for Jesus, that that's one of the reasons why we do it. That's, why that's sometimes when we think we're being successful is if someone comes up to us and says, great job. Boy, I'm glad you're here. And that can prop us up, even as we're working for God and wanting to glorify God. That temptation is it's going to prop us up and make us feel better. And we've got to always be, be aware of that. Now, I'm not saying that all compliments are false. I mean, sometimes they're true and legitimate. We've just got to be careful not to let it, not to let it sink in. But the flattery didn't work on Jesus. So they had this whole flattering type of deal to set up this question. And you see it at the back end of verse 14. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar to, or to the government or not? Should we pay taxes to them or not? Now, let's take a step back and remember who's asking this. You have the Pharisees. The Pharisees, pro-government, and pro-Rome, we'll put it that way, or anti-Rome. 
You got it. They are anti-Rome. You go back to the part of Mark 11 when Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. He's sitting on the donkey making a messianic claim. And everybody is saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were saying, well, Hosanna means save us. They're saying, I, I, we want you to save us from not our sin, but from the rule of Rome. And so they, the Pharisees, that's where they were. Anti-Rome, anti-government, absolutely not. They didn't think that they should be able to have to pay taxes to this pagan group. Well, the Herodians were like, well, of course you should. Of course you should. So there was, it was strategic that it was the Pharisees and the Herodians that were coming together because they thought that the only answer that Jesus could possibly give was one or the other. They didn't see a third way. They didn't see that Jesus was already out in front of them. But Jesus was pro-tax and the Bible is pro-tax. And that's where we sometimes have to be real careful because there may be some group that may say all taxation's theft. I don't think I should have to pay taxes to those, 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 those ungodly authorities and such. And then there may be others that think that certain people should be taxed even more to be able to kick in and, and do all of this and, and to try to, to, to measure that out somehow, some way. And I'm not here to talk about economics, but what I'm here to talk about is this. Anything that we hold to and anything that we say that we believe, we must make sure that it is up against what the scriptures are saying and is propped up and supported by what the scriptures are saying. Because Jesus actually addressed both. Well, Jesus addressed in one and by the spirit, the apostle Paul addressed another. So let's look at that. In Matthew 17, verses 24 to 27, uh, the Apostle Peter has an encounter with someone who was tasked with collecting what's called the two drachma tax. You go to verse 24 and it says, When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, so it wasn't like Peter is coming in and saying, I had this conversation with this guy at the temple and he's trying to tell me to do this. And I just don't understand what's going on. Now, Peter has walked in. Jesus already knew what was on Peter's mind. And so Jesus now is going to set Peter's mind straight on some things. Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax from the sons from their sons or from others. And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. So the kings aren't going to collect taxes from their own children. They're going to collect it from their subjects. And so this is where Peter was realizing, well, I'm following the king of kings and the Lord of lords. I'm, I'm his son. I'm a, I'm a child of his. Why would I have to pay taxes if that's the case? Jesus then goes on to say, however, not to give offense to them. So Jesus was aware of our role as followers of Jesus in a world that does not follow him. There are certain things that we are to stand up for, and there are certain things that we're not to give an offense to. And this is one of them. And, and I think Romans 13 is going to help us to understand this a little bit more. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. God always provides. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Yes, Jesus paid taxes. 
That's what it says. Now, the Apostle Paul, so that's the temple tax. And you're like, well, maybe there's a, an understanding there because we're spiritual people. And we're trying to help spiritual things. It's kind of like a tithe. Okay, I get that. But you got to remember that back then that the temple was also part of the government, too. That's why they were at odds. Because you got the spiritual government and then you've got the civil government. But let's let's put this to rest when you get to Romans. Now, Romans, when Paul is writing this, he is not writing to people who are living in the Holy Land. He's writing to people that are living in Rome. So what are the rules for that? Well, Romans 13. I found it. Romans 13. All right. So let's read through this. Verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. He didn't say, let just the Christians be subject to the governing authorities. He didn't say, let the non-Christians be subject to the governing authorities. He said, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Hear what's being said in the word. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath in the wrongdoer, on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So remember last week when we're talking about that we've got to evaluate from Scripture everything that we hold to see if it's true or not. Now, sometimes we can so separate the political mindset that we have and the economic mindset that we have from the biblical mindset that we have that sometimes we can say, I believe the Scriptures, but then we come along and say, but I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to pay my taxes. I'm not going to give this. and I'm not going to do this. When clearly in Scripture, it's telling us to do that. So again, God, from this passage, God puts all rulers into place. He's the one, his sovereign rule is putting everybody in place. Even the ones we don't like, even the ones that don't believe like we do, he puts them there. And to resist those rulers is to resist God. Rulers are a terror to those who are bad, not a terror to those who are good. If you do evil, rulers are an instrument of God's wrath. We are to be in subjection due to one, avoiding God's wrath, but also for the sake of our conscience. And so when we look at this, Jesus, getting back to Mark 12, you know, is this really all that Jesus is communicating? It, it really, it really is. Because what Jesus is saying is, one, he understands that they're, they're being hypocritical. And a hypocrite, that's a theater term where you're putting a mask over yourself and whatever, you can have whatever face you want, but you're presenting this. And it could be a smiley face, it could be a sad face, it could be a crying face, whatever it may be, but that's what you're presenting. And they're, they were presenting something false on that drama stage. They were presenting something false. But he, he knew their hypocrisy and he knows the hearts of all of us who would come and would feign faith. He would, he knows 
where we are. He knows if we're being truthful. But he then he says, why do you put me to the test? So he already puts them back and he knows what they're up to. So he got that out of the way. And then he asked, he says, bring me a denarius, denarius and let me look at it. And so I can just see someone reaching into their pocket and just flipping a denarius to him and Jesus catching it and, and looking at it. And he looks at it. Whose likeness and inscription is this? Now, the thing is, is that that was a piece of currency that they were all using, Jew and Gentile alike. So even if they didn't like the Romans being in there, they were still using their currency in order to be able to get goods and services. So they were still using that. But the, the idea is Caesar's. This is Caesar's. And then Jesus, some of you who are in your women's, who are taking the women's Bible study, you're learning some literary terms, and one of those terms is an aphorism. It's like a little, little pithy saying where he is he's saying something that is very memorable, very short, very quick, very concise, very memorable. And he says this, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. The Herodians and the Pharisees thought that Jesus could only answer in one of two ways. And yet Jesus answered over here. He answered in another way. Render unto Caesar. Oh, give, pay what is due to Caesar. He reminds the Jews that there is a, and theologians call this a dual citizenship. We are, as Christians, let's just put it in our terms right now, and the Jews in the same way, there's a dual citizenship. There is a temporary citizenship that we have where they were temporary citizens of their, of their country and of this earth, but God was calling them to be eternal citizens of heaven. For us, America is not an eternal citizenship. America is a temporary citizenship. The moment we die, we cease to be citizens of this country. But there's a greater citizenship. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 reminds us that our citizenship as Christians is in heaven. That's our number one citizenship. And boy, don't we have to be careful not to let that second temporary citizenship trump that first citizenship that we have as followers of Jesus. We can let the things that we see um, have more influence over us than the citizenship that we do not yet see yet, but hopefully has changed us. While we're here as citizens, um, we, we are reminded of what Jeremiah said. When the people of Israel were taken in exile and they went to Babylon, some of them were wondering and, and how, to, how to operate. They were, some of them were just sitting there and they were weeping and they were crying because they wanted to go back home. They wanted to go back to Israel and they, they couldn't understand what was going on. And so Jeremiah, by the Spirit, tells them this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So they were to pray for the welfare of the city that took them away from their land. God allowed it. And God said that would happen whenever they would continue in disobedience. He says, you'll lose your land. 
And he took them over there and made good on that promise. But while they were there, they weren't to just sit there and moan and groan. Just like sometimes we sit, I wish I could just go to heaven. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to sit and wait until I get to heaven. I think that's, that's disobedience. As what, however well-meaning that may be. I think that is a stark disobedience because God is telling us in the land that we're living here that may not be the, of, the, of God at all. In fact, a case could be made that it's completely gone the opposite direction of God. But he's saying, look, you stay here. You build a life. You worship your God there because I'm still there too. I'm here as well. You worship you, and you seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you and you pray to the Lord on its behalf. Are you praying for Denver? Well, I've given up on praying for Denver because I just see some of the stuff that's coming out of there and I see some of the people that are in charge there. Do you pray for Washington? Do you pray for... And that's what we are supposed to do. As citizens of heaven, we are here as citizens of earth and citizens of our country, and we are to continue to pray for them. So rendering unto Caesar means that we are to do what we can to pray for Caesar and to pay taxes to Caesar and to have Caesar to provide a an infrastructure for us to be able to have peace and to be able to move and to have goods and services provided for us. But we're also recognizing that we are to render unto God the things that are God. On that coin was an image of Caesar. What image do you bear? Well, as human beings, Genesis 1, 26 and 27 reminds us that you're made in the image of God. There is no other creature in the universe that is made in the image of God except humanity. Others will try to tell you differently. That we're just another animal. Don't you believe it? There's something on us. We're able to communicate. We're able to procreate. We've called, we're, we're called to have dominion over things. Not to be tyrannical. But to take care of the earth. And pro- provide for it. And, and preserve it. All of us as human beings. All 8 point whatever billion people on the planet. Are image bearers of God. You have purpose. You have meaning. You have value. Don't let anybody tell you anything any different. But there's more to that. Jesus told us that we must be born again. Because all of us are born, are listening to this. We've been born at one time or another. I'm not a scientist, but I figured that out. All of us that are listening, we've been born. But Jesus tells us to be born again. And in Colossians chapter 1, I want to read this to you. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 tells us this, is that we are to also now be bearing the image of Christ as Christians. He is the image of the invisible God. This is beginning in verse 15. I think I said Colossians 1, but it's in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether heaven on earth, by making peace by the blood of his cross. So Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Well, I've never seen God. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. That was what was in John 14. 
And so if you trust in Jesus, the Bible tells us he comes to live in you. He's, he's in you. You are in him. You're, you're, you're together. John 17 was talking about how we are to be one with him. And we are one with him. So it's not just enough to be an image bearer of God who's been born. But we need to bear the image of Christ as we've been born again. So Jesus was holding up that coin saying, this image bears Caesar. But I want your image to bear me. That's what we're after. That's what we have to be talking about. So whose image do you bear? What is the thing that drives you? What's the thing that motivates you? What is the thing that, that provides you your identity and meaning and purpose and value? For some of you, maybe your schooling. For some of you, maybe your health. For some of you, it may be that job that you're trying to attain. For some of you, it may be that, that girlfriend or boyfriend or your family that, that gives you that identity. It could be the values that you've held on to. It could be any number of things that anybody in this world would say, those are really good things. But those can't be ultimate things. None of those things were designed to provide that identity and purpose and value. That's why so many, when they attain all of those things that I just listed, they finally get it. They, they tend to get into some sort of depression because they're like, I thought this would do it. Well, it was never intended to do it. There's only one. Jesus Christ, he is the only one that can provide you that identity, that can rescue you from the brokenness that not only this world has, but the brokenness that you have. And by turning from that and turning with everything that you have to Christ, then you will find that by bearing his image, you are fulfilling what God would have for you through prayer. And, and, and then you live through prayer, through the word and obeying what the word has to say, applying the word to your life, getting together and gathering together in person. Once COVID hit, we realized how valuable it was for us to be together and how tough it is when we're not. This is bringing back all sorts of memories for me, not knowing who's listening on the other side, but we trust that God is bringing his word to bear somewhere on someone, and we trust in that. But I want to just leave you with this. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render to God the things that are God. We are citizens here. But whose image do you bear? Let's make sure that we are showing people and bearing the image of Christ our King. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can be here this morning. I, I know I've said that at the beginning of every prayer, and I'm just glad that we can be together, whether live or whether someone may come back along and listen to this later. May we bear your image, Father. May we not take you for granted. May we take on the image of your son, Jesus. Thank you that he made peace for us by the blood of the cross, that we can be reconciled to you and to you alone, not based upon anything that we've done or haven't done, but based upon what you've accomplished for us. May we render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God, as your word has said. And help us, Lord, to show, show us areas of our lives that may not bear your image like they should. Thank you, Lord, and pray, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we go, I want to just let you know that um, if you're watching on Facebook, then there's a comment section.